From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 155 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling and I am joined by my co-host, producer and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. I was over the weekend, I was looking again for something to watch because I thought I'm going to try to relax for a couple of hours. And I thought, well, I watched Ford versus Ferrari, which I'd never seen. I loved it. It was a great story and all that. So, and I'm not, I'm not in the race cars and all that, but I like that. But then I thought, I don't know what I was researching. And for some reason, Atlantis, the Lost Empire kept popping up, how people had worked on it or, or done something in, in the course of their careers. And I thought, you know, I haven't seen this since I, it first came out. And, and, and you know, they were going to redo the, the submarine voyage at Disneyland to be themed to this, you know, as one of their their schemes to bring back the submarine voyage. I thought, I have to rewatch this. So I did, and uh, and it was enjoyable. I liked it. I didn't think it was a great Disney film, but I thought it was a terrific little adventure film. A nice departure from the fairy tales. I, I didn't, uh, for some reason, um, Michael J. Fox's voice, I felt, didn't suit the character. And his voice bothered me. I felt they should have found someone else to voice that particular character. I think because for me, Michael J. Fox basically plays the same role. He he plays the same character no matter what <laughs> he does. What film, he's the same exact person. And this character wasn't Michael J. Fox. And so it, it, sometimes hearing that character speak sort of took me out of the film. But otherwise, I enjoyed it. I haven't actually watched it since the first time I saw it years ago. I was not, I was not left impressed with it way back then, mm-hmm. and it's it's been on my it's been in like my Amazon shopping cart because there is still a handful of movies, animated movies that I don't own yet. I that is one of them. Treasure Planet is another one that I'm like I just. I didn't enjoy it enough. I want to own them all, but I'm going to have to be at a point where I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to finally get it. But it's it's even harder now that Disney Plus is out there and I have I have it more accessible and it was on Netflix for the longest time too. So, it's uh it's it's something I will eventually re rewatch and and rediscover and see if my feelings have changed on it, but I wasn't a fan, but Ford versus Ferrari, you have me on that. I I love that movie. I know it is a classic dad movie, but it's just so enjoyable and the acting is amazing. I I can't mm-hmm. get enough of it. Yeah, it is just so well done. Uh, yeah, and I agree. Treasure Planet, I just couldn't get into it. I mean, even I watched it with my children, you know, way back in the day. 
And I, and I thought, okay, that's another one I'm going to have to rewatch just to see. But I don't, I'm not a big fan of reimagining stories, you know, like they did with Treasure Island in order to make it Treasure Planet. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I watched, um, you know, National Theatre of London. Uh, you know, they've been showing on YouTube uh, a different play every week, and they reimagined. Uh, Treasure Island and and Tom Hawkins was like Tammy Hawkins or Thomasina Hawkins or something. It was all, all the major characters were women, but they made the adults. Um, they were not strong characters. It turned they were all wimpy and they couldn't they they they, they wouldn't be able to screw in a light bulb if they put their minds to it. And the Hawkins character was the one that pulled them all out of everything. And I thought, I, I, I don't know what the purpose of that was, but it totally ruined the play for me, that they departed so much from the source material. And uh, yeah, Treasure Island did that for me, too. I'm I'm fine when they do interesting takes on classic stories, but I need it to be... I, I need it to definitely have something that stands out about that story that really makes it interesting or the design of it has to be like radically different and kind of out of place that it it does add that interesting element to it but like with Treasure Planet in particular like I just hate the animation in it I don't think the animation is strong at all I know they were they were it wasn't it was a strange time for animation and they were they were trying different things with it but I just I don't like the look of it at all. So that right there, mm-hmm. even if the story is good and it's it's on point with with the original story, it's just it lost me at that element. So I, I, mm-hmm. I'm very I'm sounding very stubborn and bratty about it, but <laughs> it's you know I it's when you get older, you start realizing that you have to prioritize movies and and books and such and. I'm getting to that point now where I'm I'm realizing that I'm I'm wasting a lot of time on bad stuff just <laughs> for the sake of being completist. Well, wait till you get to my age. <laughs> you think you're old now. <laughs> oh, anyway, oh oh, you know, last week we talked about you know that web series that the Walt Disney Archives is doing. I forgot to mention, and it's too late by the time this airs, but. This is for you, Craig, I guess, if you haven't already signed up for it. Uh, but maybe maybe I'm bringing this up in case they make this available at some point for everybody to watch. Uh, the, the Walt Disney's birthplace in Chicago, Illinois, is giving a virtual tour of, of Walt's home on, you know, that, that Elias and Flora built. And they're doing it June 24th. So this is the day after we're recording this episode. But I only just signed up for it a couple days ago. And they, uh, but, so I'm hoping that, you know, maybe as a fundraiser or something, they'll make it available or they'll post it on their YouTube channel or their uh, Twitter, you know, Twitter account or something like that. That would be cool. So, yeah. So anyways, uh, talk about that. And then we come, <laughs> folks over the weekend probably noticed that a story time with Michael, you know, we've closed the chapter, the final chapter on story time with Michael. Uh, Craig, do you want to, do you want to um, talk about that? Yeah. So unfortunately uh, it, 
Uh, keeping the long story on the shorter side, it does come down to, to being a copyright thing and something that we didn't really consider when when we started doing the story time with Michael because it was obviously done in is done in a way that, you know, we just wanted to to provide extra content and make people happy right now while so many people were at home, but also you know, have let connecting with Walt have a video presence in a way that we can't do with every episode, and and but it just comes down to the fact that the books are copyrighted material that that artists and writers and publishers, everyone is putting, you know, they're they're putting it out in the world and making it, and it's it's kind of like going back to the day of of the MP3 wars and Napster and everything. It. By doing something like a story time video, it technically is breaking copyright law, even if it's made with good purpose and intention behind it. So just for 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 our sakes and not to cause any legal stirrups with with Disney or anything, we're we're taking a break right now until we can figure out if there's a certain parameter that we can still keep story time with Michael going, uh, whether it's you know books that have have made it past their copyright date and such or or any something something along those lines so a way to still continue it back up so we're just kind of we're pumping the brakes on it for right now hoping that we can retool and and get back to it in the future here and it's it's sad because again it's it was all of it was done with the the best intentions but we also have to be concerned about Disney every now and then because Disney is uh, notorious for going after uh, mm-hmm. random, the most random stuff in the world, like nurseries that have characters painted on the wall. Oh, no. and <laughs> so. Yeah, that is odd. But I, I just want to say how how kind you all were with the reception of my telling stories. There are some just just lovely comments that really touched my heart. And I was so happy to hear that, you know, families were, were watching it together and enjoying it and that you enjoyed the little history elements behind it so thank you so much it was a project that made me very happy even though it was short-lived and um you know they they are locked in the vault so you never know what might happen to them someday in the future it's not like uh, they've been deleted but uh, it was fun it was fun while it lasted and i hope I, i'm so pleased that you came along with me you know, on that little project. And who knows Who knows what else we'll come up with in the future. So, you never know. Anyway. All right. Okay. Um, well, you know, this, this is my summer of, uh, as I've been telling people, of sequestering and surgeries. And as you all know, I went through a couple of uh, rough surgeries earlier this year. I'm going through one that hopefully isn't going to be as terrible on by the time the show airs it I'll probably have gone through it. You may have noticed the quality of my voice when I returned from surgery. It's a little different. And that's because a left ventricular cyst um has been discovered on my larynx. And uh there is a chance it could be cancer, but they're telling me that you know it's a slim chance. Of course, they said that about my appendix, <laughs> and and that was. So let's hope they're correct with this one. Either way, it needs to come out. 
So it is being removed on Friday, January June 26th. And so I I hope that you will, um, when you hear this show, you will send me, as you always have done, your your positive thoughts, prayers, and pixie dust that I I do, that it's not serious, and that I do a full recovery and sound back to my regular self. So there's an 85% chance uh, that... I uh, will sound better, like my old self again. There is a 1% chance I will sound worse. <laughs> and then there's the, the rest of the odds are um, that I'll sound the same. So so let, let's just hope that 1% stays down there really low. Um, anyway, so that's it. Now, there is a chance I will be on vocal rest, and we won't know for how long until after, uh, after the surgery. It could be one day. It could be three weeks. So, keeping that in mind, <laughs> we we have record. We are going to be recording a show in advance for next week, and then after that, it may be that uh, Craig is going to dive deep into our archives again to bring out a show from our vintage uh, Disneyland show. Um, which, you know, it'll seem about right to bring something from Disneyland since it'll be celebrating its 65th anniversary, you know, about that time. So so we shall see. So, that, so that's what's up with me. All right. Well, this week we are winding up our discussion of the groundbreaking Silly Symphony cartoons as part of our Walt Disney's Animated Cartoons and Features series. In past episodes, we've discussed the Alice comedies, the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit series, and Mickey Mouse's career from Steamboat Willie to Fantasia. In our three-episode discussion of the Silly Symphonies, we explored the history of the Silly Symphonies and some of the most noteworthy cartoons. Then in our last episode, Craig and I shared five of our Silly Symphony favorites. And this week... We're going to share another five of our favorite Silly Symphony cartoons. Um, Craig, should we remind folks of the cartoons that we chose that were on our list? We can. I do not have that script up, though. So maybe you (laughs) can help out. Should I run through them? Yes, if you could. I probably should have given you a heads up, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Anyway, okay. What Craig chose... Uh, from 1932, Santa's Workshop. And then staying in that jolly holiday mode, he chose 1933's The Night Before Christmas. Then The Wise Little Hen from 1934, in which Donald Duck made his debut. Music Land from 1935. And finally, Little Hiawatha from 1937. On my list, I chose uh, Funny Little Bunnies. I Craig got... Christmas, I got Easter. That was from 1934. And then The Flying Mouse from 1934. Uh, Three Orphan Kittens from 1935. Who Killed Cock Robin from 1935. And then Mother Pluto from 1936. So in our previous episode, we ended with The Flying Mouse. So this week, we are starting with a flying bird in... Who Killed Cock Robin? If Disney ever made an R-rated silly symphony, this would be the one. (laughs) This is um, Who Killed Cock Robin from 1935. 
This is a, a very dark and brutal satire, and it was directed by David Hand. The story's by Bill Cottrell Joe Gr- and Joe Grant, and the story sketch was by Bob Kuahara. Animations by um, Ham Lask, Lusk, um, Norm Ferguson, Bill Roberts, Dick Lundy, Eric Larson, Hardy Gramatke, Jerry Geronimi, and um, Bob Wickersham. The music is by Frank Churchill. It's based on the nursery rhyme, Who Killed Cock Robin? And it was nominated for an Oscar in the Best Animated Short category, but it lost out to another uh, animated short in another Silly Symphony. This one is full of um, caricatures of the day. So while Cock Robin, who is caricatured after a very popular singer... Uh, at the time, um, Bing Crosby, who also went into acting later on, um, he's serenading Jenny Wren, and she's a very um, she's a very May Westisk sort of uh, type of caricature. Very um, has a very large bosom, let's say, for a, a Wren, and um, and she uses it to her full advantage, and uh, and whilst. Uh, Cock Robin is serenading uh, Jenny Wren. An unseen assailant shoots an arrow into Cock Robin's heart and he falls to the ground. Uh, and it gives the other birds in the tree an impression that he has been shot and killed. So the police arrive at the scene and they arrest a Harpo Marks like cuckoo bird and an Edward G. Robinson inspired um, sparrow uh, and and uh, and then another uh, character actor who would have been very well known to audiences at the time um, st- a step and fetch it based blackbird um, as suspects um, the step and fetch it character caricature is uh, again it's considered um, inappropriate by today's standards but Again, it was it was a comedy trope that was very commonly used in the day by those studios, uh, by the studios. But even back then, the public um, found it offensive. Uh, and um, but there was no way this can be removed from the film, this mm-hmm. character, without affecting basically the whole flow of the film. So um, anyway. The next day, a trial is held over the identity of Cock Robin's assassin, with an owl served, serving as the judge and a parrot as the prosecutor, interrogating the suspects. All, the only thing the owl can say is who killed Cock Robin. So, and um, and 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 there's, they have Cock, Cock Robin's body there as evidence. So a blackbird confesses he hadn't done, seen, or known anything about it. The sparrow refuses to say anything. The cuckoo doesn't know either. So he just points to everyone. He points to the judge. He points to the parrot. He points to himself, showing that he is indeed cuckoo. Everyone is astounded. By that, no one knows who murdered Cock Robin. So, and this, of course, is a takeoff of courtroom dramas and uh, detective films of that era. And so, so then they just decide since we don't know who, well, anyway, we'll get to that because Jenny Wren arrives and she just rolls into that courtroom. Um, uh, anyway, and demands that she sees 
justice done for her cock robin. And so eventually, because they have no idea who did it, the judge declares that every all three suspects be hanged because they don't know which one of them is guilty. So there's there's justice for you. So just then, an arrow strikes the judge's hat, and its owner, which who is Cock Robin's supposed killer, and it is revealed to be none other than Cupid himself, from, of course, St. Valentine's Day fame. He reveals that though he did it, Robin isn't dead at all. He simply fell for Jenny Wren and is currently unconscious from landing on his head. And the arrow he was shot with is only in his armpit. And sure enough, they shake uh, Cock Robin. And, um, well, let's just say Jenny revives Robin, and they kiss. Mm -hmm. And then then, um, they sort of cover up with her she carries this big fan with her which she uses to her advantage because then she sort of opens it up and there's a shadow of the two of them as um let's just say jenny draws the shorter cock robin to her mac her buxomy breast uh much (laughs) to the excitement of the jury so this is like I don't know if there's another Disney cartoon that has been so suggestive until Jessica Rabbit in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I'd agree with that, yeah. you got to consider, this is the 1930s. (laughs) And this is surprising, I think, coming out of the Disney studio for the 1930s. Now, this is a wildly popular cartoon short, and an extract from the cartoon is featured the following year in Alfred Hitchcock's film Sabotage, and the film's opening credits thank Walt Disney for um, giving permission. And Jenny Wren and the Cuckoo Bird, they make it, they they reappear. They are in um, the Silly Symphony Toby Tortoise Returns. So, um... So what do you think of uh, Who Killed Cock Robin, Craig? I I do like this one. So it is... uh, I think this is one of those perfect balances that uh, it'll go over most kids' heads or they will be completely disinterested in it. But it is... It's it's a a way to see a certain side of animation for adults in it. So I I Mm -hmm. enjoy it. I do... You know, I, I pick up on on some of the characters that are are being portrayed in it. So I, I think I think it's it's worth a watch. So it's probably not everyone's yeah. cup of tea, but I enjoy it. Yeah, there, there's there's I have a list of all the voice actors. There's some notable ones. Um, Billy Bletcher who did a lot of voice work for the Disney studio. He is the judge. Leo Cleary, Cleary was a very well-known character actor at the time. He is an Irish cop in this. That's how he's billed. And Pinto Colvig, you know, our Pinto, mm-hmm. who, you know, voiced Goofy and all kinds of people. He was the district attorney parrot. And, um, and you know, today, though, this cartoon is sort of one of the black sheep of the Silly Symphonies, I think, because it, it is so suggestive. But in the 1930s, it was one of the most popular films in the series. It was the first Walt Disney cartoon to play for three weeks at Radio City Music Hall, followed by a month-long run um, in the first-run theaters in New York. 
So, um, yeah, so it was very well received. Uh, I think it was thanks to Jenny Wren there. Yeah. Well, probably, yeah. <laughs> anyway, the, the, the fluffy Jenny Wren. So, anyway, Craig, now we're back to you. A very different film from Who, uh, Who Killed Cock Robin. <laughs> yes, but uh, still a lot of, uh, you know, some similarities in that. There's a, a mm-hmm. bit There's of a romance story. in this one. Yes, yeah. exactly. And uh, my, my choice, of course, was Musicland. And this is one of the uh, the silly symphonies that I just didn't appreciate for the longest time. And uh, it is it is true art. And uh, I love how it tells the entire story with just music. So in, in the realm of silly symphonies, it, it is... It lives up to to what it was supposed to be, and of course, you know, it all takes place in in music land, where where we have the the land of symphony, which is all classical uh, music stylings and, and and residents, and then on the the other side of of the sea of discord, you have the Isle of Jazz, where there's brass and and uh, just jazzy elements and so on the uh, classical side in the land of symphony uh, there's of course a princess who's who's growing bored with with everything that's in in her land but meanwhile the prince across the way in uh, in in the isle of jazz it, it he also has very little interest in in what's happening there and of course, uh, at one point they they end up they end up meeting each other and instantly falling in love with one another until until the parents get involved in a way. So the 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 cello, the mother, so your your queen in the story ends up locking up the the prince of the Isle of Jazz in in the tower, and uh, a bird travels back over to the Isle of Jazz to his father, the king over there, a tenor saxophone, and and so we can find out that he, he is locked away, and, and with this, uh, the battle starts, and so Jazz is going to face off against against the Isle of Symphony, and, and each one sets up their different artillery that they have, so with the with uh, the Isle of or the land of symphony, of course, is using these big uh, pipe organs that turn into cannons, and you know the ride of the Valkyries is is mm-hmm. humming along with it. And and over on the Isle of Jazz side, it's it's very much um, you know lots of different instruments coming together to to send across jazzy notes. And the the princess, meanwhile, is trying to stop it all. And, and surrender and get both sides to quit and and luckily the the prince is able to actually get out thanks to thanks to a, a well-placed shot and rushes to to get off to save her and when when the parents see what's actually happening they stop fighting and save save their children and then it ends up being a happy end because the the king and queen of both lands as well as the prince and princess have a a very strange double wedding where everything <laughs> everything becomes okay but it's uh it's it's you know it, that also with it it builds the the bridge of harmony between the two mm-hmm. uh, the two sides so it's uh i i love just all the little 
the little plays and and kind of the the narrative about what was even happening in the the 30s with music at that time and transition mm-hmm. of classical into jazz so it's 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 really it's really really wild to watch and just the yeah. the use of music in it and not not verbal narratives i just i love it so much this is a brilliant absolutely brilliant cartoon short and yeah yeah, like you i didn't really appreciate this until i got older and this you know every generation you have the older generation and the younger generation disagreeing on music and like you said craig that's exactly what was happening in this era uh jazz was um overtaking classical music and parents uh, people who loved classical music saw jazz as it, it, it was destroying music and and it was like the worst thing that could possibly happen you know to music and and so that, that's that, that's you know showing in music land and but okay when but when um when they lower, when when the Isla Symphony lowers their guns, the organ pipes, and it they blast the Ride of the Valkyries. Do you in your head still sing "Kill the Wabbit, Kill the Wabbit"? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it's immature, but I I just love those um, those operas that Bugs Bunny did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Me too. Okay. What's interesting is Walt Disney didn't think much of Musicland when it was first released. And yet today it's ranked amongst the great cartoon shorts uh, uh, of all time. Uh, As with many Disney cartoons of this era, the animators are cast by sequence. Dick Lundy animates the flirtation between the Prince of Jazz, the boy saxophone, and the Princess's Symphony, a girl violin. And um, let's see, uh, Frenchie de Tremodin, I- I'm sure it's a French name. I-, I have no idea how you'd pronounce it. He ha- it handles the, fo- the sequences of the queen interfering. And as the boys marched away to be you know, locked up inside of a large metronome, Dick Humor animates the scenes of the boy and girl during the warfare between the two islands and then the settlement, which ends their hostility. And Les Clark animates the boy inside the prison. And there's just some great sight gags in here as well. Like uh, when the boy is writing his note, he... uh, Harline, um, Lee Harline works this in, this musical joke. He writes the message um, to his father in musical notes, but it's notes for the prisoner's song, which is a current hit tune being used in a symphony um, at that time. So, um, anyway, so I, I thought that there's little things like that in there that are just brilliant. And um, let's see... Uh, Les Clark also animated the double wedding scene between, you know, the prince and princess and the king and queen. Now, one animator, Clyde Geronimi, he primarily handled scenes with one character. So he animated many of the scenes of the king in his palace. And there is a risque moment where he's sort of um, dallying with a female ukulele dressed in a hula skirt. So um, now the interesting thing is years later, um, Grim Natwick, who worked on this, um, he was discussing the film with John, with historian John Colhane, and 
Natwick thought the musical instruments were not pliable enough for animation, and he felt the characters were cold and benign. So Natwick animated the string instruments dancing the Beethoven's minuet and G in the opening, and he just found that very difficult to do. So Musicland has a huge amount of special effects. There's water, there's smoke and explosions, especially during the battle sequences. And Cy Young and Ugo de Orsi were the two of the studio's um, chief um, special effect animators. But a lot of this, the, the regular studio animators had to work on the short and and work on these special effects so that Frank Thomas, who was fairly new to the studio, um, he recalled um, animating the musical notes falling like confetti during the wedding scenes. And that was considered special effects animation. So he said, I could have been an effects animator. And um, so Lee Harline was the musical composer of this film. And he worked closely with Wilfred Jackson on his cartoons. Jackson felt Harline's music was more symphonic than... than um, studio musician Frank Churchill and he thought that was more appropriate for Musicland's story. So Harline incorporated like we've been talking about Beethoven Wagner, an 18th century gavotte jostle with bugle calls and snippets from musical scores and he wrote two original jazz compositions The Saxes Have It and Jazz Fireworks and then he um, even, and then I talked about that musical joke, The Prisoner's Song the other tour de force in this too is there's no spoken dialogue so the wedding vows vows are squeaked out on violin and viola strings uh, masterful because you understand exactly what they're saying mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um, you know so anyway so um, anyway so this is just brilliant brilliant piece of work and and there's so many details in it. You can watch it over and over and catch new things, which is a sign of just a brilliant piece of animation. Completely agree. Yeah. Okay. Good choice there. Well, <laughs> now now I move to something a little more just adorable and cute and fluffy. Uh, on my list is 1935's Three Orphan Kittens. and uh, But you know what? It might be about cute little fluffy kittens, but this is the winner of the 1935 Academy Award for Short Subject. And it share, it's what beat out who killed cock robin and it shared the venice film festival special medal in 1936 with who killed cock robin and it was followed by a 1936 sequel more kittens and this was adapted into a book uh the orphan kittens um the world is a wonderful place and it it was included into a, a book compilation of disney's animal stories and you know i own three cats so and so I like cats, I like dogs, I like all animals, but this film tells the story of three kittens. And the, there's the little black kitten Tuffy and his sisters, uh, his little golden kitten called Fluffy and the little smoky kitten called Muffy. And their adventures in a house. And boy do they have adventures. It sort of reminds me of the um Country Mouse and the City Mouse um that we talked mm-hmm. about once on one of those um you know, Turner Classic Movies um, from Treasures from the Disney Vault. Well, 
it opens up really sad. Uh, the kitten's uh, a car, there's snow, and a car drives up, opens the door, and just dumps these kittens in the snow and drives off. And then, so they're wandering around in the snow, and they notice a house nearby, and they enter it for shelter. And they arrive at its, after they go through the basement and all that, where there's a boiler and everything, they arrive at its kitchen and it began to play there. Now, the, the one issue with this film is that there is um, an African-American housekeeper who, again, is a, a very stereotypical for films and television shows and anything of this era. So... Um, and I read that she ended up becoming that she was loosely based on a character I think that was popular at the time. I'd never heard of the character, so so mm. I don't know. Anyway, but she's finished preparing a meal. You only see her feet and her um, stockings and sort of the hem of her dress, and she's always pulling up her um, stockings. And um, anyway, she's preparing a meal. And after more playing in various parts of the house, anyway, she, the films cause havoc. Anyway, and so after more playing in various areas of the house, um, the film switches and, and it just focuses on little Tuffy, who's chasing a feather and ends up um, on the piano keyboard. Now, the other kittens have. The, the, the table's set, obviously, for a dinner party. They have, you know, as, you know, they've tried to crawl up on the table and they've pulled down on the tablecloth and dishes have come crashing down. They've they've gotten into food. I mean, they've done all kinds of stuff. They've chased flies and, and broken things. And um, anyway, this is sort of a clever part. Um, the kitten starts to play with the feather walking down the piano keyboard. I don't know why nobody in the house heard this. And the feather lands on the on switch because this is what we would call a player piano or a pianola. And the kitchen, uh, and it begins to play a variation of a song composed by a fellow named Zez Confi in 1921 called Kitten on the Keys. And so that's really cute. Nice little Nice little touch there. Well, the other two kittens, Fluffy and Muffy, join Tuffy. And when the um, player piano finishes its song and the kitten leave it, they're caught by the housekeeper. And she is irate. And she prepares to um, throw them out. But the little girl of the house... Now, they've also been in the little girl's playroom and they've done damage up there. Um, but she's they're stopped by the little girl. And she, of course, thinks the little kittens are cute. And she decides to adopt the kittens, much to the uh, consternation of the housekeeper. So, anyway, so um, it was uh, directed by David Hand, who would later direct Snow White. And Frank Churchill wrote the music, including the song Hallelujah, that's sung by the housekeeper. And I already mentioned um, Edward Zez Confrey's um, Kitten on the Keys. That was mm -hmm. included in the score. Aunt Delilah, who apparently is the name of the housekeeper, she was um, voiced by Lillian Randolph, a very well-known um, character actress at the time. And Marcelite Garner, again, I said we'd talk about her. Um, she did the kitten meows and the little girl. 
Miss um, Garner wa- worked in the ink and paint department at the time. But more importantly, she was the voice of Minnie Mouse at mm. the time. So, anyway, so Craig, have you seen um, the three orphan kittens? I have, yeah. I think it's a uh, it's a cute one. So it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I am not a cat person, so I think that's mm-hmm. why uh, maybe you find it to be a little bit more adorable than I do. But it's still it's a it's a cute little little one and has a little funny ending there when the cats are all tucked up in bed and stuff and all the little hijinks they get into along the way it's it's just very fitting so Mm -hmm. it's nice yeah now yeah it is it's just cute and funny and um now the original version of three orphan kittens contains a scene very similar to some of the scenes i've already discussed when the kittens are in the little girl's playroom they encounter a doll and um, it, it it's sort of a, a blonde with um, curly hair, curly cues. It look it reminds me of Shirley Temple, but when you flip it over, it is that Topsy doll that we talked about earlier, and it shouts "Mammy" it, again. Very common in this era. Well, um, it, so it scares the kitten when it flips over, and and it's. It's a different doll. Well, the kittens end up tearing it to pieces anyway. So this scene was removed when the cartoon aired on television in the 50s and 60s. But then, interestingly, the cartoon was released uncensored, first on the VHS release of Dumbo, and then in 2006 in... um, Uh, in the Disney Treasures DVD, More Silly Symphonies, where it was placed in a section entitled From the Vault, and it's included along with other cartoons featuring stereotypes. And those are prefaced with an introduction by Leonard Maltin. And um, so, um, Three Orphan Kittens is rarely seen today because it features a caricatured African-American maid, which again was, like I've been saying, was a common comic type in the 1930s, but unacceptable today. So um, it's too bad because the rest of the cartoon, like we're saying, is very cute and charming and is so technically accomplished that it won the Academy Award for that year. So um, so I'm moving from um, kittens to dogs <laughs> for my next one and that is mother pluto um from 1936 this is not pluto's uh first introduction he did was introduced in silly symphonies but it um i think this is a better uh introduction for him and I Pluto is one of my favorites, and I, I know you're not as fond of him, Craig, as we talked about, but I love the Pluto cartoons. And I think some of it is because Pluto doesn't speak. I, I don't know how Goofy got to, and, and poor Pluto didn't. Maybe it's his early training. But um, Pluto, everything, all of his humor in his facial expressions and in his movements and in the dilemmas that he gets himself in it's all carried out through uh, you know mime basically and it's done so masterfully i think that's what i admire about pluto's animators and his story um, board artists you know is that that how they can tell a story 
a Pluto story without any words and and do it so well. They convey Pluto's emotion and his confusion and and all that just so masterfully. So I think that's one of the reasons I like Pluto. So anyway, the cartoon starts out in a farmyard and, and with a hen in Pluto's um, doghouse. And she knows, well, well, she's actually, I think she's actually in, I know she's in his doghouse, so she's really in her own hen house. Anyway, um, she notices a butterfly and she goes after it after hiding all of the eggs under the hay in Pluto's, uh, let's say it's in the doghouse, so that no one will steal them. So once she leaves, Pluto returns and gnaws a bone that is in his doghouse and he feels something underneath him and he hears some noise and that's when a chick is hatched much to the surprise of Pluto and all of the other chicks hatch and follow Pluto outside he tries to escape by going over the fence but the chicks go through all the little fence holes and all that to follow him and the the chicks are playing with Pluto and they're driving Pluto nuts and they play with him until they get distracted by a, a jumping grasshopper. And so Pluto takes advantage of this to get away from the, from, um, the chicks. But uh, the chick notices and becomes upset after swallowing the grasshopper. And so he comforts it. And as he comforts the chicks, he sort of starts... Um, enjoying being a mother so he's cuddling them and he's smiling and he's looking very content and then you know this is after all his consternation with the chicks running all over him and pulling on his ears and tail and all that kind of stuff so um the hen comes back into pluto's doghouse only to notice that her chicks have hatched and they're gone and after finding them with pluto she and pluto argue over the chicks. Pluto wants to take care of the chicks, but of course the mother chicken, these are her babies. She wants them. So the hen goes to a rooster to help her get back her chips, chicks. And the rooster and Pluto fight as the chicks go into his doghouse. And Pluto is just exhausted after the battle. And um, the, the chicken, the chicks are off with the mother. Uh, Pluto um, goes back to his doghouse he's exhausted but then he starts he tries to go to sleep but he starts thinking happily about his time with the chicks and then suddenly all the little chicks come back to their very first mother pluto and pluto embraces them and uh, i don't know if they live happily ever after or if you know they just sort of visit pluto on the weekends or what but um they they appear to be a big happy family so anyway, so that's that's the synopsis of Mother Pluto. So, um, it's, anyway. you, you already nailed it with my thoughts on it. It's not one of Pluto's worst outings, I will say that, but it's still, it's not my favorite. Mm-hmm. So anyway, well, now Mother Pluto is the first cartoon in which Pluto starred without Mickey. And, you know, and that, of course, was in a silly symphony. And with this film, um, Pluto became the only member of the regular Disney gang to be featured in two silly symphonies. Um, Mother Pluto was originally going to be released in the Mickey Mouse series, but then was reclassified as a silly symphony just before its release. 
And the music was by Lee Harline, and the score includes excerpts from Where Oh Where Is My Little Dog Gone and Thomas Brighton Bishop's John Brown's Body. And um, the the Pluto was voiced by Pinto Kolvig, and the hen, once again, our Florence Gill. And the Silly Symphony um, Sunday comic strip ran a two-month-long adaptation of Mother Pluto from August 14th to October 16th, 1938. So, Craig, now over to you. I knew this one was going to be on your list. Yes, I'm saving probably my favorite one for last. I don't know, because I do love Santa's. Santa's workshop and stuff as we've we've said before so but this is definitely uh, one of my favorites overall and of course that was the the little Hiawatha and I think a lot of my reasoning why this is one of my favorites is because at least for a time at Walt Disney World this used to be one of the shorts that would play on the the TV inside the rooms at, at the Walt Disney World Resort mm-hmm. hotels and so I had a lot of exposure to it. So I, I wish that they still played a variety of the classic cartoons that, like, like they did before. Like they played a lot all the time on a dedicated channel. And and again, this was this was one of my favorites that they showed. And I think I think it's because I, pr- I probably would have saw it on Disney Channel when I was a lot younger. But I saw I know I saw it a lot when we first started staying at Wilderness Lodge and something about Wilderness Lodge and the uh, little Hiawatha just they they do go hand in hand together so uh, and they do that because basically it's it's the story of a little Native American boy and he's paddling his canoe he's very young you can already tell he's he's not doing that well he's you know, getting caught in little eddies and twisting around and just, he, he is not, there's clearly something that's just, he's not really good at what he's doing yet. And he's, he's off to go hunting. And so as he's, he's sailing down, he finds the land that he wants to get to. And first thing that happens is he doesn't pull close enough to the shore. So he basically uh, falls down into the water and all the animals are standing by just laughing all over uh, at his expense and so at this point it's i think this is when we get to the first time that uh, little hiawatha's pants end up falling down i think i counted like seven eight times throughout the entire uh, cartoon but uh, this is, so he, he starts his hunt starts off with the grasshopper who who just you know spits right back in his face essentially when when he goes to to hunt it with his bow and arrow and his pants fall down and uh so all the animals start laughing again so and he he corners a baby rabbit who's crying and just like can't do anything and uh, luckily little hiawatha shows a little sympathy to it and by giving it a tiny bow and arrow so they can duel to at least make it a fair fight but uh, it that doesn't even work so uh, he just he lets him 
get back to his family and i believe his pants fall down again at that point uh, <laughs> a couple points in there uh, and then uh, hiawatha starts to track a, a bear and it's it's not the first bear cub that he sees small well within his range but then of course uh, you have mother bear that uh, is very aggressive and uh, luckily all those animals that had been laughing at at the little native american boy end up helping him out in different ways so like the beavers are cutting down trees to to help uh, like roll across into the water so that way he can run across the water to escape the bear they cut down trees when the bear starts climbing it there's possums swinging swinging him from branch to branch a, a deer has this little makeshift sled that he he has little hiawatha jump on the back and then runs him out of the forest and and eventually the little native american boy does get to his canoe and uh he's he's rolling rowing off with the the beavers at his side and everything is okay and nature is all at one and it's just uh you know the the pants falling off they probably could use a little bit less of that but it's just it's a cute <laughs> little uh a cute little silly symphony and and like i said watching it over and over at wilderness lodge where it just that nature fits into the aesthetic of the silly symphony it, it is a perfect pairing for that resort mm-hmm. yeah that, that i think the bare bottoms was that must have been a common comedy trope at the time because in watching i've I watched a lot of silly symphonies uh, this last couple of weeks and th- there's a lot of little bare bottoms <laughs> some oh. of these uh, so um and anyway. that even but, yeah. follows into snow white and pinocchio and uh there's mm-hmm. there's fantasia there's a lot of, <laughs> yeah there's just uh, something about butts in disney and just it's easy target yeah yeah so anyway well of course the song of hiawatha is a famous 1855 epic poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow about the fictional adventures of an Indian warrior named Hiawatha based on Native American legends. Walt Disney first encountered the poem when he was a student at Benton Elementary School in Marceline, Missouri, and he was enraptured by the poem. And Hiawatha has sort of a long history at the Walt Disney Studio. This this silly symphony, Little Hiawatha, has no connection to the epic poem. Um, The title was chosen for its name recognition by the audience because the poem was very well known at this time. And other cartoon studios did the same. Um, Little Hiawatha, though, appeared in several stories in Walt Disney's Comics and Stories, published by Dell Comics, and for single issues of Dell's Four Color comic series. Now, in 1940, Storyman Ted Sears, he worked up a serious cartoon short title, um, Pipe of Peace. This is where Hiawatha, playing his flute, brought peace between all the animals and humans. But Walt Disney had bigger plans for the character of Hiawatha. And in their book, Disney Animation, The Illusion of Life, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston wrote, Walt was always way ahead of any of us, searching for new procedures, new forms of entertainment. One theme that kept haunting him was the story of Hiawatha. He kept bringing it up over the years, trying to find the right way to do something with it. He'd said to us, There's something there, you know, something we could do, something that's right for us. I don't know what it is or how we'd do it. 
Don't think of a film. Don't even think of a show. Don't limit your thinking to a regular theater. Maybe it's something out in the woods or on a mountain. Maybe the people are brought in or I don't know, but there's something there. He felt the subject needed something beyond a film to be properly presented. Now, author Bob Thomas wrote in Walt Disney and American Original, a Hiawatha feature metamorphosed over a period of 20 years. And when a story man lacked an assignment, Walt instructed, put him on Hiawatha. But despite all these efforts, Hiawatha was never produced. Now, in 1943, Walt seriously started work on Hiawatha as a feature film. And at one point, he considered having Native American artists do concept art and to employ it in some way in the finished film. So starting in animation, Dick Kelsey became an art director at the studio. Um, He worked on 1940s Pinocchio and in Fantasia. Um, He worked on the Rite of Spring segment. He worked on Dumbo 1941 and 1942's Bambi. And then he served in the Marines during World War II. And um, Walt put him in charge of a crew of artists to create storyboards for the proposed Hiawatha animated feature in 1948 and 49. And Kelsey almost single-handedly produced a large number of atmospheric storyboards. And they were so evocative and accurate that decades later, these storyboards were pulled out of storage to be studied for the 1995 Disney animated feature Pocahontas. So um, so an early version of the story started with an intertribal war and the great spirit sending a deliverer in the form of Hiawatha to reestablish the peace and prosperity. And the Disney storyman added a villain named, Ta- oh dear Lord, Tada Aho, I guess, who was a featured warrior and whose jealousy of Hiawatha results in various acts of treachery, in ki- including killing Hiawatha's best friend. And eventually, the villain dies in a massive snowstorm, and Hiawatha is vindicated from all the earlier actions that this villain took to undermine Hiawatha in front of the tribe. So Kelsey told the other artists at the studio that Walt doesn't want to make this a light thing. He wants to have a terrific musical accompaniment, almost Christ-like, but not quite. Walt said it was originally his idea to get the storyboards up to show the material we are going to work with. Then call in the composer. Tell the story like we just told it. Let the composer write a suite called the Hiawatha Suite. Then go back and start working from the composer's musical score. So on December 8, 1948, the studio held a showing for all the artwork and story that had been done on the feature. Whilst most praised the artwork, others feared that the approach was too highbrow in its seriousness, much like the earlier unsuccessful Fantasia, and not what the audience would expect of a Disney animated feature. So, the film faced many challenges, including finding enough skilled animators who could handle um, drawing realistic human figures. It was also considered risky because the Walt Disney Studio still had not recovered financially from World War II, so the decision was made to concentrate on Cinderella, which ended up being a wise choice since it was both a critical and financial hit. 
In September 1949, the story of Hiawatha was once again reworked so that it could be told in a flashback format to a white missionary to a tribe. In that way, it didn't have to be a straight story, but focused on the best segments. So Kelsey did even more storyboards, and that villain disappeared and was replaced by the evil magician Pearl Feather, and he battled with Hiawatha for the big climax. Well, it's generally believed that Walt abandoned the property um, by the end of 1949, but press articles about the forthcoming feature appeared as late as 1951, but it never happened. So, so that's the, that's the history of Hiawatha, starting with Little Hiawatha. Hmm. So quite a so so Walt really had an admiration for that character. Uh, yeah, quite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know there was that much into it. Yeah, yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, well, those are some of our favorites of the seventy-five silly symphonies produced by the Walt Disney Studio from nineteen twenty-nine to nineteen thirty-nine. You know, and this small selection illustrates the wide variety of stories, characters, and music in these films, and the remarkable innovation in animation the artists, animators, story team, directors, and composers accomplished in those ten years that gave us the foundation for the animated films we've enjoyed from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs up until today. So, and now we're going to uh, go back in, in time again and see what happened this week in Disney history. Okay, well, the week of June 28th, here we go. A lot of stuff happened on June 28th as we're sort of leading up to, uh, well, sort of leading up to Disneyland's opening. But anyway, so, okay, so the week of June 28th, the third employee of WED Enterprises, now Walt Disney Imagineering, was born on June 28th, 1910 in Vernon, Illinois. An on-and-off member of the Walt Disney Company from the days of Fantasia, he created the first rendering of Disneyland in 1953. What is his name? Hmm. He drew Disneyland on that oh. weekend with Walt. Okay. You were coming in and out of there, so I heard like one word of that and I missed something else. I'm assuming now you're talking about Herb Ryman. Absolutely. Okay. There Artist, Imagineer, and Disney legend Herbert Dickens Ryman, better known as Herb Ryman. Herb Ryman drew the first rendering of Disneyland in 1953 over a weekend with Walt Disney. Supposedly, they lived on tuna sandwiches and coffee. He also painted the first official rendering for Walt Disney World's Cinderella Castle and worked on both Tokyo and Euro Disneyland, now Disneyland Paris, and Epcot Center. Ryman's beautiful paintings of Epcot were an essential tool in selling the park's concept to potential corporate sponsors, as well as helping Walt Disney Productions plan this unique park. Good, off to a good start. Okay, June 29th. At Disneyland, 
A new Tomorrowland attraction opened to the public on June 29, 1974. It is in the space of a previous attraction. What is the name of this new attraction? Hmm. Can I have a hint, please? Um, it's in Tomorrowland. Oh, I said that, didn't I? Um, they they released an, a long playing record of it shortly afterwards. Okay, I'm going to take a guess and say America Sings. That's correct. America Sings opened in Tomorrowland's Carousel Theater. A special press preview was held with invited guests receiving a promotional version of the soon-to-be-released long-playing record and a painted casting of Eagle Sam. Now, Sam was voiced by Burl Ives, and he guided visitors through four very elaborate musical scenes, each with a medley of period tunes. The attraction featuring over 110 audio-animatronic animal characters replaced the General Electric Carousel of Progress, which had moved to Walt Disney World. So, now that's an, that's an, a long-playing record that I wish for like a future D23 Expo, Walt Disney Records would re-release. You know how they, they, they like to re-release yeah. old LPs? That would be a fun one. I, I need Country Bear Jamboree first, but I would be okay with America Sings eventually. Mm-hmm. Well, that could do both. What's stopping <laughs> them? <laughs> okay. All right. June 30th. On June 30th, 2011, it is reported that Walt Disney Studio is developing another film based on one of its theme park attractions. Walt Disney Pictures has hired Jason Dean Hall to write the script. What is the name of the script or the name of the attraction? They're one and the same. <laughs> I I want to say that it. I'm I'm leaning towards the Matterhorn one that never got made, just because the name isn't really ringing a bell to me. Who you said? Yeah, yeah, I have no idea who he is. I should have looked him up. It is the Matterhorn. Of course, that's the the popular bobsled ride at Disneyland. The storyline will be about five young mountain climbers scaling the Matterhorn who have an unfortunate encounter with a Yeti. Yeah, I have a feeling it was probably good they they, um, never made this. (laughs) Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, it would have been like Tower of Terror, that movie, which I've never seen. I mean, Steve Gutenberg's always enjoyable. Is he? Is that on Disney Plus? I wonder if they, if not. I wonder if they'll release it for um, Halloween. I don't believe I've seen it on Disney Plus, but I also don't believe I've looked for it. Yeah, I, I haven't either. Well, we're in a new month already. July first. On July first, twenty thirteen, construction begins to install the nearly twelve foot tall C A L I F O R N I A letters that once stood in front of Disney California Adventure. Where can Disney fans find these letters today? Where do they stand? I I don't know. Where do they stand? You know, not far from where I am sitting at the moment, outside the main gate at Cal Expo in Sacramento, California. They were first donated by the Walt Disney Company in May 2012. The installation was expected to be completed by July 12th in time for the opening of the 160th State Fair. 
And then recently, well, somewhat recently, they, they added lighting finally to them. Not like they were, not interior lighting, but, you know, lighting that shines up yeah. to the letters. And, you know, we're not having a state fair this year because of the whole COVID-19 pandemic. But you know what they're doing? Because, you know, people go to state fair for the food. You know, what are they going to deep fry this year? That's what I always look for. Um they are. They have been selling now for a couple months. You can order it, I think, on a Tuesday, and then pick it up on Friday or something. State fair food um, platters, and it's typical state fair food. You have to order a minimum of two dinners, and and it's all the lovely deep fried things and corn on the cob and all the traditional state fair food and then for nine dollars you can add corn dogs to it and and drinks and stuff isn't that a hoot that is now that is yeah yeah but um i haven't done it i've been so tempted to do it but right now i have um dietary restrictions and i can't have corn corn on the cob and all that which Mm -hmm. i love and so um so i haven't gotten it but i've been so tempted so I think it's like $20 a plate. So that's not bad. That's not bad. No. But you have to drive down there. And you have to drive down there and pick it up. Yeah. So, okay. All right. July 2nd. Although it has been up and running since June 5th, this Walt Disney World attraction is formally unveiled during a dedication ceremony. I should formally unveiled during a dedication ceremony on June 2nd, 1972. What is the name of this attraction? I'm. I think you have me stumped again on this one. Okay, let me give you a hint. It's in Tomorrowland. I'm still not positive. Okay, well, what do you think it could be? It's one of your favorites. We've talked about this many times. Um. I'm going to take a wild guess and say if you had wings. You're absolutely right. If you had wings, sponsored... (laughs) Yes, go with your gut. It was sponsored by Eastern Airlines, which at this time was the official airline of Walt Disney World. It will be the last Omnimover ride Disney will build for over 10 years. And, of course, this attraction features such travel destinations as Mexico, Bermuda, Puerto Rico, the Bahamas, and New Orleans. It was a fun attraction. Okay, July 3rd. The only Disneyland attraction to open outside of the theme park is dedicated on July 3rd, 1966. What is the name of the attraction where it is located? I'm guessing, just because we we talk about it, somehow it comes up all the time. I'm guessing we're talking about the Midget Autopia when it got moved to... um, Did it get moved to... Hometown? I don't remember. Yeah, well, you were close. Yeah, Marceline, Missouri. That's what I meant. That's what, yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, the Midgetopia opens for the younger residents of Marceline, Missouri, following a dedication ceremony. And the dedication plaque reads Relocated from the Magic Kingdom of Disneyland is a gift to the children of this community from Marceline's favorite sons, Walt and Roy Disney. Accepted in appreciation July 1966, Mayor C.A. Young. 
and the plaque may be the only thing that's left of that attraction. I know they have a couple of the cars still, but um, I don't know how their efforts are going on restoring that attraction. I know they've been working on it for a while. Okay, July 4th, Independence Day. What made its debut at Liberty Square at the Magic Kingdom Walt Disney World on July 4th, 1989? <laughs> I'm not I'm not positive. You know, and Carol and I were on our honeymoon and we were here that day and we had no idea this was going on. A replica of the Liberty Bell is hoisted and lowered into its permanent spot at Liberty Square. Hmm. Thought that would have been there longer. Yeah, me too. But yeah, that's that's when it was done. So, well, they had a they had one of the real ones. Well, no, they had replicas for a while that belonged to each of the different states. And then, if I'm remembering correctly, then they had their own made. Not sure if I'm correct on that, but um, okay. Anyway, so okay. Well, that's it. Very good, Craig. Well, Walt Disney said that the Silly Symphonies were a place where the artists could play and tinker. They started as an experiment, Walt said. We used them to test and perfect the color and animation techniques we employed later in full-length features like Cinderella, Snow White, and Fantasia. I believe we are both in agreement that these shorts should not be lost to time. And that anyone who's interested in the history of Walt Disney's anima- and animation um, should watch the Silly Symphonies. Um, now, one of the things I learned as I prepared for these episodes, I realized how important it is to have the physical media for historic Disney films, because as we've been talking about in this episode, many of the silly symphonies reflect popular comedy tropes used by all film studios in the 1930s, that over time our society has realized are now insensitive and inappropriate. However, these films are still valuable not only for their artistry and innovation, but important for fostering discussions about what our society and people's attitudes were like back then and how we have worked and grown to be a more open and diverse society. Um, When I was a teacher, I would tell my students that this is one of the most remarkable attributes of the United States and its people, that we are able to be self-reflective and learn from our mistakes improve ourselves and our country and realize that although we are not a perfect country, we are continuously working to improve the lives of our citizens and of our union. Um, Film critic Leonard Maltin's introduction to some of the cartoons on the Disney Treasure Silly Symphonies does a very good job explaining societal attitudes at the time the films were made, placing them in historical context and why they continue to be valuable today. Where I've referred to several books, articles, and websites during my research for these episodes. Uh, as a, the book I referred to is Walt Disney's Silly Symphonies, a companion to the classic cartoon series by Russell Merritt and J.B. Kaufman. Uh, records, I listened to this wonderful set, um, Disney, the Silly Symphony Collection, 1929 to 1939. They, I think I, I went through practically the whole thing. I saw the eighth 
album to listen to. But uh, there's some great liner notes in there, also by Russell Merritt and J.B. Kaufman. I remember, um, I think Randy Thornton from Walt Disney Records, Walt Disney Music, he said that they, uh, they're thinking of coming out with a CD set of this collection. I would um, love that. Yeah, that would be nice. So, okay. Um, some articles that are referred to. Disney's Never Made Hiawatha Animated Feature by Jim Corcus for Cartoon Research. Walt Disney's Music Land by Devin Baxter for Cartoon Research. And the Disney Wiki. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners connect with you on the Disney Unplugged network of shows? As always, you can find me on shows like the the Walt Disney World edition, the Universal edition, best and worst of Walt Disney World. You'd think I'd remember what I'm doing with my week, <laughs> but apparently I don't. And, uh, of course, always on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. (laughs) 